0: I don't know what to do. I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. A Merry Christmas to everyone. Happy New Year to all the world. Hello there. Hello. Hoop. Online. Hello. Hello. I don't know what day of the month it is. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know anything. I'm quite a baby. Never mind. I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. Hello. Hello. Hoop. Hello. Hello there. And then he opened the window. He put out his head. There was no fog. No mist. It was clear, bright, jovial, stirring, cold, cold gold piping for the blood to dance to golden sunlight heavenly sky sweet fresh air merry bells oh glorious oh glorious what day is it today he called down to the boy in sunday clothes today why it's christmas day would well, you know whether they've sold that prize turkey that was hanging up there go go bring the man who owns it and i'll give you a shilling you come back in five minutes i'll give you a crown who am I talking about? Ebenezer Scrooge. What in the world happened to Ebenezer Scrooge? Well, if you've read A Christmas Carol, you know. Advent happened, right? Advent interrupted and disrupted his life and a visitation of love resurrected a dead man's soul now i don't know how deep charles dickens faith ran but he wrote a Christmas carol out of a Christmas worldview. So, for instance, in Charles Dickens' written version, Scrooge saw the spirits after he got this phone call at midnight. (laughs) And uh, not all in one night, not all in one night, when we see a Christmas carol on television... It happened all in one night, but not in the original. It happened on three consecutive nights as if to symbolize Christ's three days in the tomb. Oh, in the original, the triune spirits, past, present, and future, trigger the thought of God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Oh, and then remember, Scrooge said at the very end, I will live in the past, present, and future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons they teach. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul to me. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Advent love invaded a miser and changed him into a saint. Once again, Paul speaks, for the love of Christ controls us. And we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I'm telling you, when Advent love invades your life, you become its fountain. You become its fountain. You become a fountain of love did not our Lord say in John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, meaning not only is your soul Nourished and hydrated by the living water of Jesus Christ, but you then become a conduit from which His life giving water nourishes others. <laughs> now, church family, what I've just said is so important to grasp as we consider our Advent scriptures for today. We are studying 1 Corinthians 13 during Advent, these four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And last week we talked about 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, the necessity Of love. It's love or nothing. Apparently one of the most gifted congregations. That the apostle Paul planted. Was also one of the most problematic congregations. They who had amazing abilities. Had divided into loveless factions. So you can have all of the talents. And all of the gifts. And all the abilities imaginable. But without love. It's nothing. That's verses one through three. But this leads to the question what is love? What is love? And that's what we're going to look at today in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses four through eight. And let me just tell you the big idea so that you'll see what unfolds here in these verses love is a fountain that's what love's a fountain not a faucet love's just not something you turn on and turn off or love's just not like a a pump in my grandma and grandpa's house in El Dorado Kansas they had a water pump outside the front door and we'd go and That rusty old water pump still worked when we'd visit El Dorado. And you'd have to pump it and pump it and pump it and pump it and pump it. And 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 finally, after enough effort, that water would come out. But that's not this. Because love is a fountain. It's always on. Always flowing. Always bubbling. It is love is the outcome of Advent invasion. And, and hear me on this. Hear me on this. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says, love never ends. L- literally, love never falls down. Love never crumbles. Love never falls apart. There's a lot of crumbling these days. We're nine months into this pandemic. It's not a game anymore. Uh, people in my line of work are flaming out. I don't know what's happening in your line of work. And if it weren't for the grace of God and a loving congregation and a wife that prays for me every day, man, I'd flame out. (laughs) We didn't take this in seminary. So we we need more than an inspirational poem to get us through this miserable pandemic. We we need rugged and resilient love. We need need a fountain. That's what we need. (laughs) Don't give me a pump. I'm too tired to pump it. I just need a fountain. I just need a fountain. And love is that fountain. Love is a fountain, not a faucet. Could you hear Isaiah and his words of a parched world. But then did you hear this verdant, vibrant, green forest that is made alive by the hydration of heaven from God in Christ? Love is not. Uh, Faucet, it's a fountain. Now, let's see this big idea as we consider three questions from First Corinthians chapter 13, verses four through eight. Three questions are these What, What is Paul saying? What are these verses saying? What are these verses doing? They're not just saying something, they're doing something. And then, thirdly, to whom are these verses? Pointing, That's where we're going this morning. Saying, doing, pointing. What are these verses? Saying. Verse 4. Well, let's just start with the word love. Love. Now, that's a rare word outside the Bible. It's the word agape. On three, say that with me. One, two, three. Agape. Again, one, two, three. Agape. Agape. It's a rare word outside Scripture. In the Bible, uh It can describe divine love, but it can also describe worldly love. So sometimes in popular Christian writings, you'll hear the word agape described as this exclusive, distinctive, Christ-like love. And that's really not true. That is to say, it can indicate those qualities, but not always It just depends on the context. For instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul wrote, Demas, having loved this present age, has deserted me. It's not a compliment, but he uses the word agape there. So, My point is, let's just look at the context. The context determines the meaning. And sometimes agape is used in the same way as other words for love. The author just wants variety. So the best way to know what a word means is to see it in its context. And in verse Corinthians 13, the word agape means this. To have a warm regard for, to take an interest in, to have an affection for, to be attracted to, to take pleasure in the other for no particular reason other than their good. So agape is attracted to you for no other reason than your good. Agape is attracted to you for no other reason than your good. And and so out of this attraction, out of this interest, out of this taking pleasure in the other, the heart bubbles up activity. And that's what we see in verses 4 through 8. Now, English teachers among us you will notice that in verses 4 through 8 there are a series of adjective phrases love is love is love and so what we read here appears love Is described by 15 adjectives but let me be more precise here because when the Apostle Paul was dictating this letter he actually made love the subject of 15 verbs so love is a verb the character of love is active so let's take a brisk walk through these verbs take a look at your Bible and then listen to me as I put this in verbal form. Here it is, verse 4. Love waits patiently for God's timing. Love remains tranquil. Take a deep breath. Love remains tranquil while waiting for the outcome because love knows who's in charge. So, so love practices patience because love knows that God is in charge. Huh. Love demonstrates kindness. Love displays warmth and hospitality. Love exhibits pleasant behavior. Love, love exhibits pleasant behavior. Huh. Love does not boil with envy. Love does not begrudge the success of another. And love doesn't brag about itself. Love doesn't inflate itself like a windbag. If Paul were from Oklahoma, he would put it this way tall hat, no cattle. Hmm? It's this rancher has got this fancy tall hat, like he's from somewhere or someone, but there's no cattle. No substance. Love does not parade its own importance. Verse 5. Love does not act in a rude way. Is there any correlation between the diminishment of Christianity in our culture and the escalation of rudeness? Love does not seek its own interests. Love does not make Acid. Hmm. That is, love does not irritate. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep score. Verse 6, love does not smile at wrongdoing or injustice. Rather, love celebrates the truth. Love follows truth wherever it leads and verse 7, love always protects. Oh, that's a word picture of a roof that does not leak. Love always protects. Love always believes. Love always hopes. Love always endures. And by the way, when the authors wrote in the first century, often the central idea was kind of like the bullseye. So the words protect and endure surround believe and hope. So because love always believes God and because love always hopes in God, then love has the capacity and infrastructure to protect And to endure. So protect and endure deal with our horizontal relationships. Believing and hoping are vertical. 15 verbs. 15 verbs. Oh, English teachers, did you notice also it's in the present tense, meaning it's always happening like a fountain. Describing the bubbling activity of love that is attracted to you for no other reason than your good. That's what Paul says here. Question one. Question number two. What are these verses doing? Well, they're, they're doing, uh, there are they're two outcomes here. The first is, these verses are identifying the Corinthian church. So so notice in verses 4 through 8, uh, verse 4 says, well, here's what love is. And then, you know, verses 7 and 8 talk about what, you know, love is. But then in the middle, in the middle, in the bullseye, is in the negative, right? Positive, negative, positive. Most of what we read here is in the negative. Why? Well, Remember. We are overhearing these verses. Paul's talking to an actual congregation in the first century. And Paul is diplomatically yet unmistakably describing the Corinthian church. He's saying... (laughs) You all are boiling with envy. You all are parading your abilities. You all are acting rudely and selfishly. You all are making acid. You're, you're manufacturing acid. You're keeping score. When misfortune hits your brother or sister in Christ, you're satisfied because you know they kind of deserved it. And you really don't want to hear the truth, you want to hear your truth. So to the Corinthians, truth was not something independent and objective. It just happens to be what you agree with. No wonder they were divided. Oh my goodness. Maybe we need to listen. And maybe we need to ask ourselves, is there a better way? Is is there a better way than the last verse of the book of Judges? In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he or she saw fit. Well, this leads us to what else these verses are doing. Because you see, these verses are offering God's visionary way of love did Paul not say I will show you a still more excellent way I'm going to show you a way of surpassing quality and it has to do with love and what love is and what love does so we don't get to define love God gets to define love and I think this is the most challenging truth for freedom loving Americans to swallow because, see, what we want to do is we want to manufacture our own definition of what love is. We want to say, well, just love is love. What is that? What do you mean by that? Well, well, then we want to just apply that definition to whatever context or relationship we want. And then when chaos breaks loose, we wonder why. There is a better way, Paul says. There is a, a way of surpassing quality. And, and I think C.S. Lewis was getting at something when he talked about Love, he discussed the difference between need love and gift love. Need love and gift love. So, when it comes to love, am I trying to get something for myself or am I trying to give something of myself? See, Lewis called the first option need love. Need love comes to the table empty and reaches out to any object that seems to hold the promise of filling it. Need love is like a vacuum. Need love forever extracts into itself those things it wants. So need love pictures a subject reaching out to an object for the purpose of bringing something back from the object to the subject. Need love transfers the value of the object back to the subject, which means that need love at its root is about acquiring and building itself up at the expense of all that it touches. And need love is perhaps the most widespread activity which you and I do. Need love seeks horizontally what will never satisfy. And therefore it is always hungry. It always has an appetite. Need love. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about gift love. Gift love. You see, the goal of gift love is to enhance the value of the object, not diminish it. Gift love is born of fullness, not emptiness. Gift love wants to share itself rather than take for itself Gift love is a spring or a fountain, not a vacuum. And so to practice gift love is to transfer value from the subject to the object. The ultimate desire is to build up, not take from. And so instead of acquiring and exploiting, gift love is generous and creative So when I was in Bible college, I was challenged with this question. Randy, when you stand up to preach, what exactly are you doing? Are you trying to get something from the congregation for yourself? Or do you intend to give something of yourself to the congregation? Why do you do what you do? what about your own vocation it takes a lot of courage to dig deep for an answer what about your relationships what about your marriage are you just trying to get something from your spouse or do you want to give something for your spouse in the corinthian church in the corinthian culture professional speakers of rhetoric would stand before audiences and their goal was to put on a dazzling performance their goal was to impress the crowd their goal was to show them how brilliant and how well versed they were in their chosen discipline and their intention was to get something from them namely praise That was the cultural climate that this church lived in. And that climate had leaked into the congregation. And it was eroding the gospel community of spirit-filled believers into a competitive Corinthians Got Talent. And Paul says there is a better way. The central truth of the Bible is that God's love is gift love and not need love. God did not have to create this world. There was no necessity outside himself. No one forced him to act. He did not create this world out of loneliness or boredom. He created out of love, out of gift love. He wanted to. Creation represents the outcome of the overflowing of the fullness of God's heart, not the hunger of emptiness. God's vision enhances value. It does not extract value. When, God's, when God says, I love you, he does not say, I love you if or until or because or as long as. God's I love you is a complete sentence. And when that becomes real in our lives, I mean emotionally and spiritually and intellectually, physically, in First Corinthians 13, agape love is a fountain, not a faucet. And it's not something you turn on and then turn off. Love is more than what you choose to do. It's who you choose to become. I, I think sometimes we think that you know, if we love the way God wants us to love, we're going to have a meeting with a difficult person. That person that you're going to meet with tomorrow morning at eight o'clock, and they're very difficult, and so I'm going to have to coach myself up enough motivation to love that person and we're going to drum up the energy to extend Christ's love to this really irritating and undeserving person and afterwards it'll go well and we'll walk away saying there I did it and if that's our mindset then we need to take another look at First Corinthians 13 because agape love or Gift love does not requisition God for the arsenal to march into a room and love that difficult person. Instead, it pleads with God to make you into a loving person so that no matter what room we walk into, we're the same person. Because love, well, love is an emotion, but it's more than an emotion. And love is a verb, but it's more than a verb. Love is a readiness to act. Love is a disposition to act for the good of another. Amen. Amen. And of course, that does not mean that you are naive or, or without any boundaries. It doesn't mean you can't have difficult conversations. Or even give correction or an admonition. God's love is wise and discerning for the good of the other. Uh, Agape love, gift love, is, is neither soft nor mushy. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5... Paul displays agape love even when he had to tell the church to excommunicate someone. And by that, we mean uninviting them to worship because that person was behaving in sexually inappropriate ways. Oh, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, agape, gift love, is to be practiced in... Even in disagreements, Paul's saying, why are you running off to the secular Roman courts when you have the wisdom to resolve the differences yourselves? Oh, and in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, agape, gift love, behaves with sensitivity toward the conscience. No. No, the fountain isn't soft and mushy. It's clear, it's brisk, it's wise, it's discerning. It is for the good of the other, and it's always on, always on, always on. and And, and some of you may be thinking now, well, wait a minute, pastor, I mean, I thought you were talking about the parched fields that Isaiah spoke of, and people flaming out, and, and I mean this is exa- always on, is exhausting. I mean, who can do this? well with man this is impossible but with god all things are possible yeah and that takes us to this third question to whom are these verses pointing we now know what they say we now know what paul's doing but now, to whom are these verses pointing? And, and we need only go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, where the Apostle Paul said, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. When we rely on Jesus Christ... When we look to him and rest in him, faith is the path for the fountain of Christ's love to flow in and through our hearts. So church family, hear me. You will never obtain agape love by pursuing it directly. You you must pursue him directly. And then out of the goodness of the king's heart and generosity, we receive his love which floods our hearts and then the hearts of others. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Agape love comes through Jesus. So seek him. He's the better way. The only way. Last week, these verses challenged us. Remember, insert your name for love in verses 4 through 8. Randy is patient. Randy is kind. Randy, oh man, that's a depressing thought, isn't it? I have work to do. And And then we said, okay, all right, let's put Christ's name in for love. Jesus acts patiently. Jesus displays kindness. Hmm. Well, let's let's take one more step here. For the next seven days, let's make verses four through eight our prayer. Oh God, oh God, make me make me a patient man. Oh God. Make me the kind of man who will remain tranquil in trying times because he knows you are in charge. Oh, God, make me kind. God, protect me from envy, arrogance, or pride. Oh, God, keep me from rudeness or self-interest or irritability or scorekeeping. May I never, God, take joy at injustice, but follow the truth wherever it leads. God, give me the strength to always protect, always trust, always hope, and always endure. God, only you can do this. I can't. You can. Please do it in and through me that your life-giving water may nourish not only my heart, but the hearts of God. Of my family and my children and my grandchildren. The congregation, the community. What if if all of us could pray this way? Let's all of us pray this way. Are you with me? And, and, And what if God in his mercy gifted us with this love? I say he has. In Jesus. Through his spirit. It is available to us by grace through faith. For did not the Apostle Paul say in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts. What counts? Only one thing. Faith on display through love. I'm telling you, it's a fountain, not a faucet. Steve Daniel learned this. When Steve Daniel was 59, I'm 59. When Steve Daniel was 59, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He was admitted to a memory care unit, and for the next seven years, his wife Mary would visit him every night after work to get him ready for bed. Mary said we'd lay into bed, and we would just hold hands, and we would watch television and... and, and Uh, Steve would just literally drift off to sleep. It was our routine. It was a way for us to connect every single day and for him to just end every day on that peaceful note. Mary said, I did that on March the 10th. And then the memory care unit called me on March the 11th. That's of this year and said, you cannot come back because of COVID. Mary said, we have separated these folks to save them, but the isolation will absolutely kill them, especially dementia patients. They need interaction. They need to be touched so that they can grow instead of just away. And then 114 days later, Mary said, out of the blue, out of the blue, the corporate office of his memory care center called and said, we've got a part-time job available. Would you like to take it? She said she she was willing to do any job they offered for the chance to get inside. And what they ended up giving her was a dishwashing position, because that's what they had. And she snatched it. She said, Oh, I go on Thursdays and Fridays, and I'm so excited to go wash some dishes because I know what the reward is. The reward is not the hourly rate. The reward is afterwards. I I will go in. I will work my hours. I will do the dinner dishes, and I'll get the kitchen ready. I will mop the floors, clean the grill, take out the garbage, and then I go and I spend a couple of hours with Steve. And we have fallen right back into our routine. I've I've already seen a difference in the anxiety level of him knowing not only that I'm right there now, but that I'm going to be there. I'm coming back. I promised him when he got his diagnosis, that he would never be alone. I promised him so that he would also know that he would never walk this road alone, that I would always be there holding his hand every second of the way. Now, I'm telling you, church family, that is gift love, and you can't fake gift love. It's a fountain, not a faucet. Did you know that once we were separated, in isolation from God due to sin, yet God displayed gift love. The Father sent His Son, Jesus, and the only way in was in the role of a foot-washing servant. And yet love came down. Love came down. Why? Because that's what love does. Jesus is love. Jesus is attracted to us for our good. And he wants us to be with him every day in a holy reunion of father, son, and spirit. He's the spiritual rock from which we drink. And because of him, we can be his Amen.